Hi, Jason. Hey, Catherine. I'm going to make you a moderator. Thank you. How you doing? I am doing pretty well. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm also going to pin a link to the top of this room. Excellent. I'm just going to try to figure out how to do that. <laughs> it's easy. It's easy. Just click your little buttons. Up you, on might, the... you might think that someone who just wrote a book about social media would know how to use it. But Oh, friend. Oh, friend. Do not even get me started. I have been theoretically working in digital for 15 years, and I still fumble with Zoom. So, so uh, because we can be companions. Is, yeah. Because this is a celebration, I'm going to invite some friends up to hang out on stage with us and celebrate. If you can't make it up on stage, that's fine. But if you want to come up on stage and hang, that's fine, too. Because... Uh, the past week, we've been doing a lot of like formal Q&As and interviews and stuff, but tonight is much more like a fun hangout, living room, online kind of conversation. Woohoo! <laughs> Jason, congratulations. Yes, yay! Yes, In congrats. Yes, this, this is the Jason Book Club. In the wow. living room, we've got our wine, right? And we're going to have a fun conversation. Ooh, that's a great idea. You know, uh, people should uh, get a beverage and then change your avatar to the beverage that you're drinking. Excellent, excellent idea. Mine is water. Because <laughs> I'm square like Oh, that. Jason, Jason, Jason. <laughs> you know that... Is it at least sparkling? <laughs> excellent um, question, my, Kelly. My personality is sparkling. So true. <laughs> You know that in, in live audio, nobody knows, can see what you're drinking, Jason. So you could have said it was something very, you know, Ivy League-ish, like a bourbon, right? Well, I, truth be told, I have not had a drop of alcohol since 2015, the only exception being my wedding. Good for you. And um, I, me and my wife have an ongoing debate in our household, because she is a huge sparkling water person, and I am not. So, okay. Well, let's not go down a sparkling water rabbit hole because I can debate <laughs> that as well. We should just jump into talking about you and your book, right? Yeah, let's do it. Let me welcome everybody. So, uh, for those who've been here before, welcome back to History Club. For those who are finding us for the first time, welcome to History Club. Uh, this club has been running since August of 2020. And we've done all kinds of amazing conversations that people on this stage have been a part of. Uh, I had to take a little break from hosting the shows weekly because I was finishing up this book. And as it turns out, it takes a lot of effort to finish up a book and run a successful clubhouse show at the same time, as well as try to do everything else that was going on in my life at the time. Oh, hey, Paul's here. So... Um, so I had to take a little break from History Club, but we're going to get it ramped back up again, and particularly because uh, the book is out and, and complete, but also because there's so many things in the book that I feel like would make great conversation fodder for us in this club. Um, this book is really about the intersection and collision of history, both the discipline of history and sort of what we understand and know about history, with the web, and particularly Web 2.0 platforms that we're all familiar with, like Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and even Clubhouse. Clubhouse is actually analyzed and mentioned in the book. Oh, Michael's here. I'll bring Michael up. And um, so 
so there's just so much rich stuff to dig into in History Club to think about this intersection of history and the web and how the web has changed what we know about history. But then also at the end of the book, I speculate a little bit about what history could or could not look like in a Web3 environment. And I'm really excited for that conversation as well, because I think we have an opportunity to think critically and carefully about the Web3 that we are building at the moment. And I would really love to have those conversations with people in tech and in journalism and people who are on Clubhouse. Um, and uh, so I just feel like there's a lot of opportunity for good History Club conversations coming up, a tied to the book. So I'm excited that the book is out and I'm excited to get back into the groove of doing regular History Club rooms. If you're new to History Club or just finding us for the first time, please uh, follow me and follow the club. And I've asked two of my amazing Clubhouse friends who are expert moderators, uh, Catherine and Amazing, uh, to join me tonight in helping with this conversation. And I've got other friends on stage who have been incredibly supportive throughout the entire process of this. Uh, Rachel, who's awesome. Andrea, who's awesome. Ivy, who's awesome. Michael, who's awesome. And then Kelly, Paul, Nina, Ray, if you guys want to come back up at any point, um, you're always welcome. So um, that's... Uh, that's kind of setting the stage. Uh, I don't know, Quasi, uh, Catherine, do you guys want to introduce yourselves real quickly? And uh, you know what, Ivy, I'm going to make you a mod as well. Aw, uh, thanks. Because you're my BFF. But uh, uh, Catherine, you real quick, do you want to just introduce yourself and Quasi real quick introduce yourself before we... Sure, just really quickly because everyone can click on my avatar and see my bio. Um, I, like Jason, have been on Clubhouse for a very long time, you know, since the olden days of last year, and so was honored to witness the birth and rise of the History Club. Um, my, my favorite area of discussion on Clubhouse is, is also in a humanities and social sciences discipline in, you know, in the realm of philosophy. But as a former, I sometimes say, recovering political scientist, political philosopher, um, I have a passion for a lot of the questions that you cover in your book, Jason, and a lot of the, the concerns that you raise that I think don't just apply to history, but to, um, you know, a broader spectrum of of the social sciences and the arts and the humanities and intellectualism in general. So I'm really, really, really excited for this conversation. And Quasi, I'll let you um, drop. Hey, what's up, guys? Um, I uh, have been a big fan of History Club since the first History Club. Uh, I'm pretty sure I was there because I remember when we all first started having clubs uh, last year in September. Um, we were still in a beta test of Clubhouse at that point, and um, I really looked forward to, to Jason's Thursday nights throughout the fall last year, and um, it's been amazing to see the growth of the club and just the amazing content that he continues to, to contribute to the Clubhouse community, and I'm excited to read the book. It's been so fun seeing the tour of, of Clubhouse you've done this week, Jason, and I'm uh, proud to be the host, uh, co-host of today's History Club. Well, thank you guys. Yeah, Catherine's amazing. Follow her and all the stuff she's doing and quasi amazing. I mean, his name is amazing. So that just tells you right there, like how amazing he is. But he's also got awesome clubs. He had a club called UN75, which is now called Past, Present and Future, which I also looked forward to every time quasi opened a room. So um it's, uh, it's great to have you guys here. And I've got Ivy and Michael and Andrea and Jennifer and Rachel, who are also great friends and great supporters and people I've gotten to know and love over the past 
year or so. So you guys feel free to chime in too, but we'll start with Catherine and Quasi and kind of go from there. And I do see there's a couple of hands raised too. So we'll get to everybody and get everybody involved because that is the spirit of history club. We are ultra inclusive and everybody is welcome to participate. So, um, Catherine, why don't I throw it over to you first? I'm usually the host, so it's a little awkward hmm. for me to kind of interview myself. But uh, let me throw it to you and just kind of see where you feel like we should start. And we can rip. Oh, gosh, Jason, um, where can we start? It's, you know, I, 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 I've, I've been reading your book. And I really, really encourage everybody in the audience to make sure that you read the book because it is a fascinating, fascinating exploration of questions that I think we're not um, paying close enough attention to. So if you're interested in history, if you're interested in technology, if you're interested in web one, two, three, the future, this is the, the, this is a really important book. And it, it's a book that's so rich with with questions and ideas that that honestly, you know, I, I feel like we could have hours of conversation. So I'm, I'm hoping there'll be more opportunity to to dive in, into some particular threads in, in other um, in other times and spaces. But, you know, for now, I would love I'd love for us to start this particular conversation with, 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 with what the, the central question that's really suggested by your title, you know, history disruptive, right? How social media and the wide web have changed history. I would love for you to speak to this question, you know, that question of disruption and the question of whether that disruption really does represent, and I know you you answer this in the book, but, you know, for the sake of the folks in the room here, to what extent does and how does the rise of social media, the, the evolution of the World Wide Web, of webs one, two, three, and the, you know, the forthcoming metaverse, how do these represent a threat to history, um, and especially an existential threat, both to history as a discipline, but also to, you know, as this is a really interesting thread that you pull through in the book, the profession of history and the whole idea of an arena of intellectual expertise around history. I, I think if we can sort of center the conversation about what the threat, um, how we might frame the disruption, or if we're gonna be more extreme about it, the threat for the audience in the room, I, I think that'll be a great starting place for starting to tease out some of the nuances of your arguments. Okay, well, nothing like a softball question to start. I thought you were gonna be like, uh, why'd you wanna write this book? Well, you know what, Jason? <laughs> you know, you know, can, can I just say that I was like, earlier today I was thinking, oh, like, you know, I'll start with the why'd you write this book, Jason? And then <laughs> the more I thought about it was like, it's like the meteor question is the you know i want to get right to this you know to this exercise no i threat, listen right? i, I got it like you know skip the appetizer get right to the main course well let me let me do a couple things first let me point out that above me is a link to the book if people are interested in it um the book is available on amazon it's on barnes and noble whatever and i've been tweeting out those links for the past week or two uh but the link I have tonight is actually an independent bookstore in Washington, D.C. It's called Lost City Books. And while it's great to get the Amazon kudos, the book has actually been number one on Amazon at various points uh, throughout the week, which is really exciting and gives me something to, to brag about. So that's nice. But this is an opportunity to support independent bookstores. And this bookstore in D.C. is actually going to host a book release party for me in early January. So if you're in the D.C. area, you're invited to this event. I'd love to meet you in person. Um, and, but if you want to support a local bookstore to buy the book from, 
I've put the link up below. And if you have a bookstore in your local town or city or wherever you are that you want to support, you can give them the title and give them the ISBN and they can order the book from you. Uh, I think it's taking a little bit longer to get the book if you're at an independent bookstore, but there's no rush. The book is not going to become stale overnight. If you read it later this month, if you read it in early January or even in February, the ideas will still resonate. So a uh, quick shout out there to Lost City Books. Please do support them and click on the link. And you can also take the ISBN from that page and order it through your own local bookseller if you want to support them. So I figured we make, I could definitely start with that. Um, let me also just set the stage too for people for whom this is the first time they're hearing about the book. So the book is, to your point, called History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web Have Changed the Past. I have been interested in this intersection between tech and history for about six or seven years now. And that interest arose when I worked at the Library of Congress. When I worked at the LOC, I had a lot of interaction with people who called themselves science communicators. And science communicators are a wing of the sciences that critically examine how science gets communicated through both traditional media and social media and how scientific information can best affect public policy. And the more I learned about science communication, the more I felt that history should be taking a page from the sciences. So I actually suggested, along with a couple of colleagues, that history invests in something called history communication. And a bunch of us got together and actually developed curriculum, uh, coursework, workshops. There's actually a history communication lab now at Wayne State University that was started by one of those early members of that group. Um, but the more I looked into it and thought about it, the more I thought there was a larger story here, to your point, Catherine, which was, the web was really profoundly changing both the history profession and the types of historical information that we encounter. And I was just surprised that no one had sort of written a book about that yet. And I began to collect articles and make notes in a Word document and months passed and years passed. And I actually felt like someone would, would probably write this book before me because there's been so much written about how the web has changed journalism and how it's affected politics and how it's affected dating and health and lifestyle and all this stuff, but no one has written about why it's and how it's affected the past. So that's what I set out to do. And the more I looked into it, the more the stuff I found just surprised me and it just seemed like it, it needed to be a book. Uh, the book at one point was 80,000 words. It's in its published form, it's 50,000 words. So I edited out at various points about 30,000 words from the book. Because when you're writing a book about the internet, invariably it can go in so many different directions. But to tell a cohesive narrative and to get a tight story together, I had to take a lot of stuff out. So at, some, at one point there actually was an entire chapter on science communication and examples of how scientific information flows across the web. And the idea was to use that as a parallel for history. But I wound up taking that out there was also a whole section on journalism and media and the changes to journalism and media because that directly affects some of the history that we see in the popular press. But I ended up taking all that out as well. So it's nice now I have all this 
stuff that hit the cutting room floor that I can repurpose into newsletter subjects and into clubhouse rooms and things like that. But this has really been a long journey um, to track all of this over the past few years. And I really hope that this book will become the start of the conversation, not the end of the conversation, because as I said, there's really not anyone out there right now thinking and writing about this in a sort of popular way. There's stuff out there in the scholarly journals. Um, so I, I see this book as a leaping off point to get to the themes that you've just raised, which is you know what has happened already in terms of history's disruption of history as a discipline and also historical information, and then where are we headed and, and what can we do about it? So none of that actually answered your question, but I felt like <laughs> it was just kind of good setting the stage for the thousand people who are in here who may not be familiar. Yes, no, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, that you did that, but I'm going to push you on the question because I, I do think it's, you know, it, it, not for many reasons, not least as which I, I think it's one of the reasons to pick up this book is to consider the question of whether and how history might be under threat and what the nature of that threat is right as you say i mean we've there have been so many conversations in the culture about um journalism being under threat politics political discourse being under threat we have you know we, we've almost created a culture in which everything seems to be under threat at all times but there is something really existential about history for you know for humanity right all of these things are arguably existential but this understanding of who we are, you make a distinction in the book between nostalgia and memory, and I'd, I'd love to circle on those points as well. But, you know, I, I think it's worth surfacing just a little bit, even just directionally, of the why it matters. That why, why, why should we care about crowdsourcing and why should we care about the storytelling of the past and the, the virality of the past and the different ways that technology is interfering with how we understand history? Yeah, so um, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because we have, when we talk about social media and we talk about misinformation and disinformation and, and, and truth and not truth on the web, we tend to focus the conversation on outcomes. Like this piece of information went that far, this piece of disinformation spread and affected this number of people, this stuff is leaning too far right, this stuff is leaning too far left. And I think those conversations about outcomes are valuable, so I don't want to totally dismiss them. But I do think we don't spend enough time talking about incentives. And the more I looked into this book, the more that was one of the themes that really started to pop out for me, is that the incentive structures built into the web to create certain types of information allow some stuff to reach our eyes with regularity and bury and disable other things so that we never see them. And of course, you can apply that to many other disciplines. So to your point, even if you don't care about history, why does this book matter? Because I think it's a useful sort of media literacy skill set to have in our toolbox to be able to identify why certain pieces of information are reaching our eyes online and why other pieces of information aren't and what agendas are at work there in making some pieces of information visible to us. And being able to recognize those agendas and decipher them just makes us better information consumers online and helps to, I think, root out some of the disinformation and misinformation that's been wrecking havoc. But particularly with history, 
the more I looked into it, the more I realized that there were some pretty consistent mechanics going on behind the scenes that were bringing certain histories to our attention and keeping us from seeing others. And what I found to be really interesting was that none of it had to do with the accuracy of the information. And that was one of the sort of moments where I sort of got this idea of history disrupted, right? Because history as a discipline is really premised on the idea of accuracy. You're trying to establish with as much accuracy as possible what may have happened in the past. And you do that through examination of sources and critical examination of evidence. But oftentimes the history that we see online, the accuracy of the information is secondary, tertiary, or not even relevant at all. What ends up happening is the history we see online, the history we encounter the most, is the history that adheres to a certain set of conditions. And that's really then changing history, if you think about it, because history no longer becomes about what is most accurate or what is what can be proven to be most uh, most credible based on evidence. It becomes, how can I best manipulate the information in order to make sure it gets seen by people? And if I do that, what type of influence, what type of prestige, what type of power can I accumulate? So throughout the book, I try to track these different mechanisms and these different incentive structures that are really changing, I think, and disrupting what we know to be history and the types of history that we, we are encountering every day. And so that when we see it on our screens, we have a little bit more media literacy in our toolbox to understand why we're seeing it. Yeah, Jason, this is a, such an amazing conversation. You know, the, your book title actually scares the shit out of me because um, the, the history can be rewritten through viral videos, through deep fakes, through um, technology kind of repositioning things that happened in the past. And, and how would people know unless they actually learned the truth at some point in their lives? Um, it's kind of scary to think about how this can ultimately uh, reshape things that we assumed were shared shared knowledge. Um, it's not just about things that are happening in real time. I mean, when you look about look back on things like the Holocaust or the Civil War or you know interconnational um, slave trade, like those things could be unwritten, right, by by certain people's actions. And so, the whole premise of your book, I think, is is super scary. Um, how do we fight against this trend? What are the things, maybe your, what are some technologies or best practices that we can use as consumers to fight against this trend? It's interesting that you say that because I, when I began this book, I actually went into it with a sort of very positive outlook. And five years later, after completing it, I realized that I, at the other side of it, I came out with a very pessimistic outlook. <laughs> And uh, the book's conclusion is a bit more pessimistic than I even would have expected myself to write, because uh, I generally like to keep a sort of pragmatic optimism about things. Um, but I, I agree with you. There's some really troubling trends on the horizon, and this is why I wanted to get the book out there and not just have it be read by scholars, but be read by people in tech and by journalists and other people, because uh, I do think we have to make some very 
deliberate, thoughtful choices with the future of the web so that the next 20 years of the web doesn't look like the past 20 years of the web. If we look back on the past 20 years of the social web, I don't think many of us are going to be particularly proud of how it all turned out. And that's because, as I say in the book, we really weren't thoughtful about it. We kind of just were scrambling and chasing the money and chasing the hype and rushing from one platform to the next and embracing things like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and even Clubhouse without really giving it a lot of thought about what it was doing to the news landscape, to the history landscape, to our understanding of politics, to the way we interact with each other. And then suddenly we looked up in 2017, 2018, 2019, and we were like, whoa, what did we just do? <laughs> How do we undo this stuff? Do we undo it with regulation? Do we undo it with breaking up the tech companies? Do we undo it with um, public pressure and, and activist campaigns? Is this a combination of all three? And of course, you know, now it's too late in some respects for Web 2.0 because all of the, the major players like Google and Facebook and Twitter, they're, they're too big and they've got too much money. They've got too much influence. They have all of our data. Uh, and they're just continuing to refine their algorithms the more we use their platforms um, to get more information about us and to make us more addicted to them so that we'll stay on longer and they can make more money. So with Web3, we need to have a totally different set of incentives. And in the conclusion of the book, I write about this, that uh, we need to find ways to privilege things on the web beyond just speed and virality. Uh, how can we build a web, a web that privileges accuracy? How can we build a web that privileges thoroughness? How can we build a web that um, allows you to be, move slowly as opposed to moving quickly, right? Everything in Silicon Valley is move fast and break things. Well, what if we didn't have a Silicon Valley that was move fast and break things? And I think the only way we're gonna get to that is if we have collective conversations that are inclusive and uh, bring a lot of different stakeholders to the table. So. That's one of the things I love about Clubhouse is it can bring those different stakeholders to the table. And it's one of the things that I hope this book can initiate and spark because I, I agree with you. I think we have a lot to do um, and we don't have necessarily a lot of time to do it because some of this stuff is already. And how does your, I know there's Jason Coyne, which I am a holder of, full disclosure. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> tell us about how you're thinking about Web3 um, in your work and, and maybe solving some of these challenges at Web2 just is too bloated for at this point. Yeah, I, I have a cryptocurrency on the Rally Network. That's what Quasi is referring to. And I do like the idea of having of being empowered to sort of create my own economy around history. And that's what I'm trying to use the coin for. Um, this is another thread in the book that I talk about. But in addition to history being disrupted by technology, a side effect of that has been that the funding for history and historical work has been severely constrained over the past two decades. As money has gone towards the sciences and gone towards tech and gone towards, towards social ventures and activism, and historical scholarship really now only has two reliable sources of funding, the National Endowment for the Humanities, which is always up for budget cuts, and the Mellon Foundation. And there's only so many people at the Mellon Foundation who are gonna give grants to historians to do their work. So I, I think one of the hopes for Web3 is that can, it can build new history economies, maybe not at the scale of a Mellon Foundation or an NEH, but to allow micro grants to historians to do 
clubhouse rooms or experiment with new podcasts or do things in the metaverse and have it be you know, a, a bit more self-sustaining and not as reliant on some of the old gatekeepers. So that's what I'm hoping to use JSON coin for. Uh, I'm sort of working towards that point. Uh, I've actually created something called the History Communication Institute, which will be powered by JSON coin and expressly be used for that purpose. So I think there's some possibilities there, but again, we have to build in the right incentives and those incentives have to be really carefully thought. So I wanna roll us back in history a couple of oh, minutes. Oh, and Catherine, <laughs> to, just real to... quick, I know that Ivy also wants to chime in as well. So uh, let's make sure we give her a chance too. And Michael and Andre and others, please do. Yeah, of course. So I, I want us to, to, to come back to Web 1 and Web, web 2 for a moment, because I, I think there's something important if we're looking at the history that, you know, in the context of civilizational terms, it's a very, very, very short history, but it's an important history. It's a, you know, there's radical disruption in human culture and communications and storytelling in so many things through the, the advent of the consumer internet. But it's, I think it's important for us to look at, and, and I, I want to, to pull out this thread that you explore in your book um, about that, the, the evolution of how we got from there to here and what we probably need to learn from that as we go forward, right? More beyond just the cautionary tale, you know, but, but into, the, you know, into the weeds of what the promises and the betrayals were of web one and web two. One of the big promises of Web 1, you know, and I can date myself and say I'm old enough to remember <laughs> the advent and to remember the, you know, that early golden era of, you know, the, the whole Earth electronic link and the promise of information wanting to be free and the promise of a democratized space for intellectual and cultural exchange. And we know that 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 vision of the fully the utopian democratized internet as a space for the full and free and robust exchange of ideas didn't come to pass exactly but it, at all you know from some arguments but there's something of that that there's a conflict and attention in in what the hope was right that that knowledge would be democratized that information would be democratized and part of your argument in the book is that it is exactly this like like this dream that the world had actually became kind of the seeds of something very very problematic because that desire to democratize knowledge you know to make it wildly accept, widely accessible to, to make expertise something that was more accessible to a wider um, you know, spectrum of people became the thing that you describe as like the user centricity of the discipline of history. And I would argue of other disciplines as well. It became productized, right? It became commercialized. But that idea that there is value, right? And there, there are arguments in this direction from both the left and the right, all to point to the spectrum, that that, that promise of making knowledge and and not just consumption of knowledge but participation in and production of knowledge accessible has long been you know one of the most closely held dreams of this technological evolution and revolution but again one of the things you point to very rightly and you know in a very you know rich way that this idea of the user-centered cultural experience the one that privileges just the individual and and um 
that that downplays expertise and that deprioritizes expertise, you know, and experience is part of the problem that we're facing here. And so a lot of those aspects of the, you know, the emphasis on what's viral, right, or the emphasis on what's most visual, or the emphasis on what's told in the most compelling storytelling terms, become elements of this more problematic force that is starting you know, as you describe it in the book, to start to, you know, to squeeze history in this very, very significant way, you know, in in that squeeze of history, it's sort of contributing arguably to a culture of forgetting, right? A culture of deep fakes, a culture of, of misinformation. So I'd love for you just to speak a little bit about that tension, right? That when we talk about the need to reclaim some valuing of expertise, that that there's that there's a little bit of a punchback that we're doing on the early promise of the internet, and there's a recognition that there's something that we hoped for that we have to now rein in in some significant way. Yeah, um, I, when I went back and looked at everything, I was <clears throat> surprised because, like you, I'm old enough to remember these things, but it sort of wasn't obvious to me at the time. I was surprised how much anti-expertise was built into the platforms from the inception. And, you know, certain founders of certain platforms were actually quite open about this. They just, they just didn't quite make it up to the surface, right? If you looked sort of below the surface, you could find these statements and these ideas, but they weren't quite in the mainstream, which I think is why many of us miss them. But for example, the, the founders of Wikipedia were very vocal in selected conversations in their circles about not only did they want to democratize knowledge, but they wanted to actually stick it to the experts. They wanted to stick it to the PhDs and the academics. And there was a really strong anti-expert ideology that coursed through a lot of the social platforms that we ended up all adapting and becoming hooked on. And I think one of the things I realized when writing these, this book is that the values that are baked into the platforms at the outset persevere even as the platforms evolve and grow and become global worldwide phenomena. So, Again, that's why it's so important that at the outset of building new platforms in Web3, different types of values and incentives are considered. Because once they get built into how the machinery operates, it becomes nearly impossible to undo them. And that was true with Wikipedia. I found in my research, it was also true of Twitter. I found in my research, true of Facebook as well even true of Clubhouse, to be honest. Um, and we can talk about what those are uh, if we want to go down that road. But uh, to your point, I, I do think that maybe uh, some of us underestimated just how much antipathy there was towards expertise. And by expertise, of course, I'm not referring to sort of tech expertise, because of course, tech, tech expertise is always valued and always privileged, but sort of humanities expertise, scholarly expertise, social science expertise, uh, the type of expertise one typically associates with the ivory tower, although it's not exclusive to the ivory tower. How much of that stuff was, was baked into the platforms 
early on and how much of that is now still with us 20 years later. So that is definitely um, a major thread throughout the book, which I encourage people to pick up and read and support a local bookstore, which is linked above if you are so inclined. But um, I'd love to get Ivy a chance to weigh in because um, she's been patient and then anybody else on stage and then, you know, we can bring some other people up as well. So um, Ivy, my friend, it's great. Jason, it's so good to see you and congrats on your book launch. I will definitely be picking up a uh, copy within the next couple of weeks. Um, yeah, so like I have quite a bit to say, but you know, this is your room. So I, so I will try and keep it. To oh, minutes, please. But... You are always welcome here. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So like, it's uh, really, really interesting that, that like you mentioned Wikipedia and what their like ethos is and like just in the overall terms of um, culture, um, like, you know, and like some people in the audience may know that I write about this quite a bit. And it was really kind of interesting to me uh, how much the substance of culture, maybe versus more the framework of like how we tell its history, has had so much of a impact um, on the history of the web. And like even like I think how people conceptualize history now. Uh, and like I really saw this during Gamergate, the whole controversy, which I, I will not go into. It's kind of a really dumb controversy, and you know you can read about it if you want. Um, but that a lot of the people who were doing journalism in that era actually kind of came from places like these something awful forums, which is my kind of one of my first internet hangouts back in the um, late '90s. And just in terms of like how those tales were told about the various I don't know flashpoints, if you want to call them that. Um, and to really see like narratives that that I could say because like I was there for for certain things that like those were like either misinterpreted I would uh, I would say or or even just like outright falsehoods told about them and like I and like I think that does come back to what you said about changing incentives but maybe I'd like to propose that you know, in, in looking at like web two and web three and like what the difference is. Um, I really think that it's less technological and more about human nature and how we tell stories. Uh, because like I saw a lot of the same currents on clubhouse over the, <laughs> over the past year, which I, which I've written about a bit too. And I'm beginning to see those same undercurrents a bit in web three, um, as well so like i can't wait to read what you've written about maybe the like substance of that culture as well and like if you cross any of the points I, I was at in my very online um career and uh i would also love to know what you think about how crowdsourcing has maybe diminished the quality of history because um maybe to dive into one concrete example of um during gamergate there was a leak of some chat logs uh, by a purported anti-harassment group that was not denied by them, but Wikipedia refused to basically mention it because the journalists that were covering it were regarded as like not credible or, you know, this is not a mainstream uh, publication and you can look on the edit page for Gamergate and see, <laughs> and see the like edit war that's been going on since like 2014. Um, so, I mean, to my mind, as kind of someone who's like, who was there for that and 
has kind of seen these um, culture war currents kind of perpetuate over and over. Like, it really seems to me that there was a big flaw in that crowdsourcing that it was kind of assumed all the Wikipedia uh, people who were doing things like editing and um, that kind of thing would be these like um, benevolent librarians almost that would have no ties to, to the material or, or the people involved. Um, and to me, anyway, what actually happened was that, like there are a lot of politics between wiki editors. Um, and one of the people involved in that whole situation in those chat logs actually said that they had got someone on the inside of uh, Wikipedia, one of their senior editors, to kind of doctor that, that whole article. So I would, I would love to hear what you have to say about that, because I don't know if I just have a like super big culture war brainworm that like I don't know is there and this, and this actually isn't real or if you've kind of seen that um, as well. Yeah, um, I think there's a couple interesting things in what you've brought up. It, one thing I learned writing this book, this is to your point about journalists. The way journalists write about tech and what they think is happening in tech versus how tech people talk about tech and what they think is happening in tech, like that is that that chasm is like the distance between like Japan and California. <laughs> and uh, that was something that surprised me as I did research on this book, because there was an early draft of the book where I had relied almost almost exclusively on tech journalists and tech reporters for information. And that led to a very different book. It was only when I started to actually talk to people in Silicon Valley and working in tech that I actually a lot of the pieces for this book started to come together and it all started to really make sense. So to your point about distorted realities and funhouse mirrors, like even the tech reporting and the journalism that we see and consume about tech has to sort of be critically analyzed for its various agendas and biases. And then, of course, when you talk to people in tech, they also have agendas and biases that need to be sorted out. And so one of the tasks in this book was sort of trying to figure out as best as possible what was really going on. And one of the things that I found was really going on was that there's actually a very strong cultural clash between those two worlds, which we all saw play out on Clubhouse last year. And for those of us who were here in the early days. Um, and so, again, some of that, some of that anti journalism, anti-mainstream media ethos that floats around the tech world gets baked into these platforms right from the earliest days. And then once it is baked into the platforms, it's very hard to extract it. Uh, but to your point about crowdsourcing, uh, there's so much that could be said. I have a whole chapter on it in the book, but let me just tell a, a brief story that's in the book so you get an example, a concrete example. It's interesting what crowdsourcing allows to get into the narrative and what it prevents from getting into the narrative. And I found this story to be particularly illustrative of that. In 2012, there was a historian who had written a new book about the 1886 Haymarket riots in Chicago, which some people who have studied American history or remember American history might recall 
There was a bombing. It was sort of a watershed moment for the American labor movement. It was used by union busters to show the dangers of the union movement. It was also, in some ways, a galvanizing moment for, for unions and for workers and for the progressive movement. Anyway, you can look it up on Wikipedia. 1886 Haymarket Riots. And there was an element of the Haymarket Riot entry on Wikipedia that this historian uh, had found to be inaccurate based on his research at the Library of Congress, in fact. So he went into Wikipedia to try to make a change, and his change was rejected. And he tried again, and his change was rejected. And he tried again, and his change was rejected. So eventually he got into a tete-a-tete with the editors. And the editors kind of held firm to their values and mores about how Wikipedia operates, which is that Wikipedia does not reflect truth, it reflects consensus. And so the consensus among the scholarship at the time was that this particular incident occurred a certain way. And one particular scholar trying to introduce his original research into a Wikipedia entry did not pass the test of verified by consensus. So this debate went on, and it went on in the comments section, in the edit history, he wrote an op-ed about it, right? But to me, this sort of illuminated the fact that crowdsourcing obviously has some positives in the sense that it allows a greater number of people to contribute to something, and it sort of democratizes lowercase d uh, knowledge manufacturing. But it also has the effect of um, allowing consensuses that are perhaps rooted in antiquated information or are guided by myth or by lazy thinking or are even guided by pernicious or nefarious ideologies to become so hardened and so fast that an individual voice may not be able to break through and shake them. So that to me was an interesting illustration about how history operates or doesn't operate inside a crowdsourced space, and in particular, how the expertise of the historian and the subject matter expert can be viewed inside that. Wow, like that is a great way of putting it, Jason. I always kind of struggle to put it in like easily understandable terms to people who don't spend most of their life on Twitter and like on other social media. Um, perhaps I'll like end off with one other question. Uh, do you like get into any specific communities or like events or is it at more of a high level? Because like one other thing that um, I found very, very interesting that that I think a lot of people wouldn't know is like how many of the so-called new media voices that that like kind of got their rise probably like 2013 to like 2016 uh were actually known like posters on the something awful forums way way back in the 90s like do you get into any of those specific sub communities or is it more of a like general kind of like look so the way the book is structured is it's structured by mechanism so what different mechanisms allow historical information to be visible on the web and what prevents certain historical information from being visible on the web. And then I use case studies to sort of illuminate 
the various mechanisms that work. So there's a whole chapter on crowdsourcing in Wikipedia, and this anecdote I just told you is one of the case studies in that chapter. So it's, it's less centered on particular groups or subgroups and more on how the mechanics work behind the scenes and then concrete examples that help. Got it. Thanks, Jason. You're the best, my friend. Uh, Jason. Buddy. Good to see you. Good to hear you. Good to, good to see and hear all you guys up here. So I want, this is what I want to say. So uh, there's a lot of us up here on stage. We're early beta testers, and we know Jason's intellect. We have an understanding because we were in small rooms where we got to really dig in to the material. And um, Jason may be too modest to say this, but one of the first rooms I, in Clubhouse, you wowed me with a sorry, a little to toddler. You're getting a little uh, uh, a cameo from my, my two-year-old. Um, you wowed me on some of the statistics and the discussion about preservation. I mean, it really did blow my mind. And I, um, and I think that dovetails with what Catherine said, with what Amazing said, with what Ivy said, is how, if we, let's, let's extend this to say the next, what if we say the next 100 years? Let's just look at that particular category. The thing that you talked about, about stuff that does not get preserved at Library of Congress was a jaw drop moment for me. So if you could maybe give people here who didn't weren't on Clubhouse at that time just a little bit of a taste of what you shared with us back then and then now situating that in the context of this book and what you what the rest of the people here have been talking about. I think it's it's absolutely critical. You may have been in that room when uh, Dr. Elizabeth Lindsay and I were doing the preservation of indigenous wisdom and we were it's it's shocking how little that's getting preserved. Like we we're actually losing wisdom on an hourly basis that will never come back. So I, I'm, I think you're uniquely positioned with your expertise and your intellect to, to, to make a real dent here. So yeah, I'd love to hear about it. Yeah, Michael is referring to the first history club we ever held, which was a two hour plus discussion about the Library of Congress. <laughs> that was a fun room. It was, uh, <clears throat> was an auspicious beginning to what has become a really, really great uh, community. Uh, gosh, such a big question on how to tackle it, how to approach it. You know, part of me sort of wants to start with things like Clubhouse, for example. I was actually talking about this, I forget where, maybe yesterday or the day before. If someone was to try to write a history of the pandemic in 100 years from now, they might somewhere along the way uncover evidence that Clubhouse existed, either in a Taylor Lorenz article in New York Times or something that got written up in uh, TechCrunch or something like that. But all of those conversations that we had before replays existed are completely lost. They don't exist. You know, some people have probably recorded little bits of them and live on some people's computers somewhere. But even in our own lives in the past year and a half, if we think about the pandemic and what we've experienced and how we've lived it, on Clubhouse, on Zoom chats, on uh, FaceTimes with our relatives trapped inside our homes. How much of that is left for future historians to uncover and dig through and learn from? <laughs> like minuscule amounts, like less than 1%, right? So it's going to be a huge challenge for future historians to try to 
write a history of what it was like to live through the pandemic because so many of the communications channels and, and ways that we've stayed in touch and stayed connected and grown community during this past two years are lost and will, can never be recovered. They, are, they only exist in our imaginations and our memories. Then you extrapolate that out to something like Facebook. right? Facebook, monumental influence on our lives the past 20, 15, 20 years. How are future historians going to write about Facebook? Who's got access to that data? Who's got access to those posts? They don't exist in the Library of Congress. They don't exist in the National Archives. If they do in exist inside Facebook, Facebook's not giving them up anytime soon because you know they're worried about lawsuits and PR and they don't want to give up the data and they've allowed a very, very select number of researchers to do research in Facebook. And I've heard from some of those people that even what they get access to is tiny fraction. You think about something like Twitter, the Library of Congress has been trying to archive Twitter for the past 10 plus years. They still haven't figured out how to do it. Uh, there's a small selection of tweets that you can access, but by and large, most of Twitter is completely gone. So we think about how historical narratives get crafted, what information is included and what is not. And we start to think about the preservation challenges that we face in a digital era. We start to think about the challenges that future scholars and journalists will face in trying to accurately reflect what the hell happened during this time that we are living in. And then you can rewind and think about all the periods in the past where so much information has been lost. And that's why when I say for, histori for historians or for discipline of history, for us, it's always about striving to find the most accurate story that we can tell, the, the, the best evidence that we have to piece, try to piece together what may have happened in the past. And understanding, of course, that there are so many voices and so many stories that we just can never get back. And that challenge is only growing more pronounced in the digital age. And I think sometimes people confuse digitization with preservation. That is definitely not the case. And I think also sometimes people assume that everything worth knowing or everything worth finding is on the web. And that is definitely not the case. Yeah, I mean that's 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 a fantastic place you took that because I you know I think I'll tell people right hey we know this is going to get lost like can you write a narrative like as as this is happening like take notes like while we're doing this like I I think I said that to Ivy and to Min and to other people who are keeping track of early clubhouse like hey keep track of what we're all doing here but then when you step back and think about it like well what hard drive is gonna hold that well, and, or what hard drive array or, or where is that even going to be you know let's say 50 years from now so i yeah that thank you jason for that did you did, did i see Catherine unmuting so yeah no i think this is a really interesting point that i want to push on a little bit because it, it goes to the question i raised earlier about the you know at least the perceived promise of, of the early internet right that we have and, and so the setting aside the question, I think it's a very good distinction to make between digitization and preservation, Jason. But with the expansion of the internet, we have radically, in an absolutely unprecedented way, expanded the scope of a small p public sphere.
for storytelling. So we can go back 20 years and say that if the pandemic had happened 20 years ago, we wouldn't know what conversations were happening in living rooms. We wouldn't know, for especially, for example, what women and people of color were talking about. We go back to the French Enlightenment, and we don't know what was said in the salons, right? We know what was published. We know, we, we know what men of letters were writing. We know what was in the capital key public sphere. But, you know, previous history, Jason knows this better than anyone, you know, has been extremely, extremely selective. There has been so much of the human condition that has been excluded from history because it hasn't been captured in any form of public sphere. And so we are, there's a lot of problematics around the fact that this public sphere that we're in right now is a privatized public sphere. To Jason's excellent point about Facebook, the information that is shared in many of these spaces, you know, is not truly fully public, but there is more being shared, right? There is more nuance. There, there is, we have, we are getting a glimpse, at least live, into you know, into lives and experiences and communities that in the past would have just not been even a blip of consideration. And so, you know, there are absolutely, and Jason covers them very, very brilliantly in his book, you know, and all the conversations that, that you've held here, Jason, of, you know, a, a challenge around understanding how do we understand what is history on the internet, never mind what is the history of the internet. But we do have to recognize that part of what this explosion of, of, of conversation and discourse and storytelling has offered us has been a much, much broader scope of a, a much bigger cut of the human tapestry than we've ever experienced in human history. Yeah, a couple of things there that, and then uh, we should get other people involved too. I, I definitely want to hear from other people and, um, you know, try to wrap this up at a reasonable time on the East Coast before it gets a little bit too late. But um, yeah, certainly there's so many voices from the past that we can't recover. Um, but this is, again, another crucial distinction between the past and history, right? And this is another distinction I make in the book. The past is the infinite number of events and things that have happened right before now. And that past is invariably irretrievable, no matter which time period you're in, because to Catherine's point, it's impossible to capture the whole panoply of human existence, people's thoughts, people's emotions, the private conversations they have with themselves or with their families or with their loved ones or in the bar down the street. All that exists and then it's gone. And uh, you know what history does is it tries to make arguments about the past. And sometimes we can make arguments based on a lot of information. If it's a public figure who's lived their life in the public sphere and there's a lot of material to dig through, um, Sometimes historians have to make generalizations about groups of people or classes of people. Uh, there's a whole segment of the history world which is, which is called social history, and social history and social historians write histories about groups of people, oftentimes groups of people for whom there isn't individual stories or individual evidence or, or records of the conversations. Um, I talked about this last night, but there's a, a brilliant book in, written in 1963, actually, by E.P. Thompson, who was one of the pioneers of social history, who writes an entire manifesto about the English working class from 1780 to 1830, circa, you know, that, that time period. And of course, some of these folks were illiterate. Some of them were, um, didn't, you know, didn't leave any records, particularly you know, women in the working, who were working, uh, families who were in the working class. 
So he has to sort of go back and piece together a large variety of records, whether it be economic activity, population data, census data, uh, land records, tax records, uh, you know, uh, diaries and, and other writings that may have been left behind by certain people to try to piece together a history of a class of people which of course cannot be exhaustive of all the people who lived during that time period, but at least offers a glimpse and a window into what things may have been like there, again, based on evidence and research. And one of the things that happens on the internet is that a lot of that deep digging, that evidence and research uh, gets discarded in favor of just the quick thing that's available right now. And that's one of the cautionary tales that I talk about in the book, is not letting the quick, shiny thing that's available right now distract us from the true task of history, which is going out and digging and looking for the harder things. Andrea, have we heard? I, I don't think we've heard from you yet. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic and questions. Thanks, Quasi. <clears throat> nice to see you here. And Jason, uh, thanks for ha inviting me up and congratulations on this opus and this epic um, accomplishment. Uh, I remember talking about this uh, with you a while ago and all of those first history rooms uh, as I guess I'm dating myself now here on Clubhouse, but um, so congratulations. Uh, and this has been uh, an excellent conversation. And I, all I can think about is how what an important work this is for the sake of our uh, youth and our children, you know, moving moving forward. Uh, when I think about this in the context of, for example, the elections and what we were also going through back while, well, you know, while you were writing this book, what we were going through in 11-3 and after we vote, Michael and Jenny and <laughs> many others, uh, where we were watching some of us with surprise and some of us completely unsurprised at what was unfolding, you know, with the elections and, and the whole concept of misinformation and disinformation. <laughs> and when you combine that with what you're talking about, I have not had a chance to read the book, but I'm definitely going to get it by this weekend and look forward to talking with you more after. But I, when I think about the combination of that phenomenon plus um, kind of the ability to revise the past. It makes me think that um, we need more rooms with indigenous leaders where we can talk about preserving our oral history. Even it, it makes me feel committed to wanting to do that within my own family as just, you know, a, as a, as a self-preservation um, tactic. But I wondered, um, did, did you cover, and I apologize uh, that I have not read the book, but have you covered the link to the impact on democracy? Uh, so first of all, no need to apologize for not reading the book because uh, <clears throat> the the actual hard copy book is not yet available. I believe you can get the ebook. Um, I think that just came out, but the the actual physical hard copy of the book is uh, still about a week or two away. So if you order it now, it should arrive in time for the holidays or the new year, and you can sit by the fire or in the ski lodge or wherever you're spending Christmas and New Year's and. Uh, read it. It's actually a pretty quick read. It's written in a journalistic style, so it's not um, 
it's not dense and, and, and academic in that respect. And um, it's actually quite short for a book about the internet. Uh, it's only about 170 pages, so you should be able to get through it pretty quick. Well, we may be doing oral history over Christmas Eve dinner. I love it. That's great. Um, so, yes, there is a little bit in the book about democracy. I actually had a lot more in there about democracy and politics and, and political economies and things like that. But I, I, as I said at the beginning, I cut a bunch of stuff out. And that was some of the stuff that I cut just because it was starting to go off on a tangent that just seemed a little bit too far away from the main thrust of the book. Um, but there's certainly lots of material there for uh, uh, blog posts and Substack newsletters and history club discussions and discussions in other clubs like uh, After We Vote. So, uh, yeah, and certainly having a, a historically literate and media literate citizenry has a huge impact on democratic politics. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's too much debate about that. Um, and I think also one of the things I talk about in the book is that over the course of the past few decades, there has also been a real sort of, um, what's the word I want to use here? The word that, I'm, that I want to say on the tip of my tongue is antipathy, but I don't even know if it's an antipathy. It might be another word. Maybe Michael can help me out. But there's been a real sort of antipathy towards institutions. And some of that's been manufactured purposefully by actors who are seeking to undermine institutions, and that includes disinformation campaigns and also uh, conservative elected officials. Uh, but some of it has also come from the fact that these institutions have just felt like they haven't kept pace with the rapid changes to our world, whether they be the changes in tech or changes to other aspects of our world. And I think history institutions are part of that, whether it's museums or whether it's academic institutions or government institutions where historians may operate. And so that also has an effect on democracy because our democracy in the United States, at least, is heavily reliant and built upon institutions and the, and the trust that they engender with their constituents. And when that trust erodes and people no longer feel like their institutions can respond to their needs, then you get populism, ethnic nationalism, all the ugly stuff that we're seeing popping up around the world. So there is absolutely a, a connection there. And, it, and I think that it's incumbent upon historians and the Ivy Leagues and the Ivory Towers and the museums to kind of get with the program a little bit, um, to win some of that trust back. And that was one of the themes in my newsletter uh, last week or two weeks ago when I talked about Constitution Dow and what it had done to kind of put museums on notice about what they need to do um, in the next decade uh, in order to rebuild some trust. It's, it's worth noting, of course, that museums are still actually some of the most trusted institutions that we have in the United States. When they do these surveys about trust, museums are always kind of at the top, which is nice, but it doesn't equate to visitorship and it doesn't equate to support in terms of philanthropic funding. And so that's one of the things that needs to be sort of. And uh, Jason, if I could and uh, just do a quick follow up, picking up on also a thread that Catherine m mentioned about the, when you talk about the past and, and she mentioned losing history uh, or losing the story or the narrative from potentially, you know, women and people of color, indigenous people, um, 
I wondered if you had given thought as you think about Web3 into who, who's lived experience, not just the technologists, but who's lived experience and, and what people need to be at the table in a way or, uh, or represented in the building of Web3, even though not everyone, you know, is a software engineer and can code or, you know, divide. I mean, I always argue for as big and inclusive and diverse a table as possible, but uh, unfortunately, it's not up to me. You know, I'm, I'm someone who, you know, has a, a cryptocurrency and I have a clubhouse space, but I'm, I'm not a builder uh, of the platforms. I'm a user of the platforms. So what I, what I want to see is I want to have conversations between builders and users and between those who are privileged and those who are underprivileged. And, um, and I hope that this book can help to spur those. I hope that this club can help to spur those. And I hope, and I hope that the relationships that we've built here on Clubhouse can help. You, uh, you have Jason, to. I want to welcome uh, Sammy Steigman to the stage. For those of you guys who don't know Sammy, he was the first Holocaust survivor here on Clubhouse, uh, hosted by Value Culture and our good friends over at that club. Welcome, Sammy. Uh, Shabbat Shalom, my dear nephew, and uh, the, hi everybody. Uh, I saw Adam, so I I see uh, amazing. So I had to uh, come. I think Mitchell. I think no Mitchell also, and I cannot sleep. So I decided, uh, you know, to look for certain rooms where I have friends. And uh, tomorrow morning, I'm uh, flying to Mexico, and I'm coming back on the 25th. Well, you know, Sammy, this is a really interesting room for you to join us. This is the all about the launch of, of Jason, Jason Steinhauer's new book, History Disrupted, How Social Media and the World Wide Web are changing, have changed the past. And you know, you're someone who experienced some of the most dramatic events of the 20, 20th century. Um, does it does it scare you the way that social media is being used to change what could be perceived as as reality, and and how that could affect things like the Holocaust? I mean, future generations maybe remember it differently if there's different content, you know, being produced or shared around that. Uh, well. Uh... I would not use the word uh, scared. I am not scared, but uh, it's uh, a new phenomenon. And it's something that we have to learn uh, how to deal with it. Uh, in many ways, it uh, improved uh, our lives uh, unquestionably. But at the same time, it's also the social media is also very uh, powerful tool to spread uh, hatred and uh, I don't think that we have yet learned adequately how to uh, deal with it. Uh, I don't think uh, legislation will really make a huge difference. In my personal opinion is that uh, we have uh, a few companies that have monopoly. And I think that I would break up uh, that uh, monopoly. Uh, 
they're too big and it's very difficult for uh, competition to uh, uh, you know uh, to combat so for instance uh, to give an example clubhouse is a good example but uh, in clubhouse you also have rooms that are very disruptive and they spread lies and everything else so uh, i don't have uh, the answer for it uh, the only thing is what i can do is uh, you know what i can do uh, so each one of us uh, in their own way uh, have to make a difference and uh, to learn how to deal with it but it's a uh, it's something we never had before, and uh, like anything else, it's positive and it's also negative, and we have to find the the balance between the two. Awesome! Thank you, my friend, for being here. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, Shabbat Shalom wherever you may be, and Kanina Hora for your travels across the world to Mexico. Thank you. Okay, so um, let me do this. Let me take prerogative a little bit here since it's it's uh, about eleven fifteen on the East Coast, and uh, I've probably got about uh, maybe ten to twelve minutes left in me before I turn into a pumpkin tonight. So, um, if anyone down below wants to raise your hand and come up, uh, now's the time. And if anyone who's here joining us on the stage here wants to chime in or ask a question or just share a thought or reflection based on what you've heard, uh, now would be a good time too. And um, we can uh, try to uh, reach some sort of conclusion. And this is not going to be the end of the conversation. We're going to do more History Club events around the book, around the subjects in the book, and so if you don't get a chance to ask a question today, then you'll just have to come back to History Club. And next time you come back, hopefully you'll have read the book and uh, we can have a dialogue about some of the specific stuff that's in there. So, uh, Catherine, why don't I turn it back over to you to uh, sort of moderate the uh, remaining 10 minutes. Sure. Um, so I know David and Jeremiah and Lisa have been up for a while. I'm not sure if um, any of the three of you um, came up to support or came up to chime in. David, I just saw you on mute. Do you want to jump in with your reflections or questions? Sure, I do. If I can have a question, I appreciate you having me up. Um, I, I have a degree in history, and I've also spent a fair amount of time uh, in my profession working with scientific and medical communication. And one of the things that uh, that struck me when I was in another room where that you were speaking about the book um, with uh, with with um, uh, I don't forget who it was, but um, uh, pl political room, and you were mentioning about the aspect of the scientific communication. There's something in scientific and medical communication, also known as um, implementation science, where it's sort of the methodology of not just communicating, but how to spur the uptake, how to sell it, if you will, to to be used to to practitioners. And it struck me a corollary to that, it's somewhat of a corollary from my study of uh, of historiography, was um, the idea of didactic history. And uh, my question is, if you could kind of expand upon that a little bit and see what you might think of like didactic history or the concept of implementation science within a historical uh, history communication, uh, uh, history communication methodology to see how people would not only 
receive information, but also know how to use history and apply history. I appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I One of the reasons that spurred me to even go down this road all those years ago was the the sense that the sciences were much further along and much more sophisticated in this than the history profession. And I think, to your point, you know, there are actual methodologies and research that is done to kind of help put ideas into action. And the sciences are way ahead of the humanities in that respect. I will say though, that the humanities are starting to come around. Uh, there's actually been some work at the American Historical Association and the American Association for State and Local History to this point, we haven't used that terminology exactly, but it's been uh, focused on doing research with public audiences, various publics, diverse publics, about these very questions, right? Not only the best communication methods and the best channels, but also then what do people do with that information? How do they use it? What is the way to engage with communities uh, that will be meaningful and, and allow scholarship and insights to become actionable. So I think the humanities are moving in that direction, but we're probably still quite a few years behind where health and science and medicine are. I will also point out that for this book, I did talk to a bunch of science communicators, and I, I mentioned early on that I had a whole chapter on science communication in this book that I took out in the end. Uh, but a lot of science communicators also cautioned me not to oversell what science communication has actually accomplished because there are many that I spoke to who felt like science communication, to Catherine's point earlier, has promised a lot but not always necessarily delivered. And so that's also something too that I think history and other disciplines can learn from, which is what are the pitfalls, what are the challenges and roadblocks that science communicators have run into. So I think there's a lot that we can learn and I hope that the History Communication Institute, which I'm in the process of setting up, will be a venue through which we can do some of that. Thank you, my friend. Lisa, you want to jump in? Yeah, hi, sorry, I, I had to take a call. I had to take a call earlier, so I missed some of the discussion. So I'm sorry if I sharing now is kind of out of the context of what you guys just been discussing. Um, I'll keep it really short because I, I don't have a lot to share, but I just want to say first of all that I am really um, impressed and really um, want to just um, say that I really agree that this topic, um, this book, Jason, is a fantastic topic and one that um, Hopefully, I just feel that it will wake a lot of people up to really look beyond what we've been like fed with um, through the media or any any other sources of information. But what what I wanted to just share is something more specific. I want to share that because of the what happened to is hap happened and is happening to Hong Kong still in the last two years and now and in the future. Um, I'm not sure how familiar um, the audience are in terms of what is actually happening beyond just what you read on the paper. Like, not only is there democracy and our freedoms under threat, but the history, you talk about, you know, history being rewritten, that is actually already happening by them censoring a lot of books, um, uh, also rewriting some of the, um, uh, what's the word? Like, labeling some of the events that occur recently and call it, uh, what it, it is so that then they can fit into a particular story rather than what actually happened. Anyone who speaks the truth and then, you know, being um, under pressure or can face 
prosecution. And so what I wanted to share is that that there is a bunch of Hong Kong people, especially on Clubhouse, they they have a lot of concern about um the the cultural values of Hong Kong, such as the language, like the dialect that we use, Cantonese and 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 and, and everything else about the Hong Kong values because it's actually quite different to the, the mainland culture. And it's just like what happened in Canton as well, where they when they want want to unify the Mandarin and um, eliminate a lot of these kind of what they call the dialects, but to, to maintain the culture of truth, right? The cultural identity and truth and history, historical events and facts. So these a bunch of Hong Kong people have, un, we have just started, they've just started a, 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 a something into the future, the, 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 the metaverse. So there's, if you go to the website, um, I think it's our Facebook page, it's called Hong Kong Matters, Hong Kong M-E-T-A, RS, as in taking the play on the word matters as well, Hong Kong matters, to, to encourage any, any public cont contribution, a collective, that's, that's the very important part, it's not taking from one source, but anyone can contribute to the old pictures, uh, video clips, any, any old news clippings, papers, whatever we can find to try to reconstruct like a metaverse Hong Kong with all the route, the maps. Um, so maybe Lisa, the I'm just for the, for the sake of time, and I know that you're passionate yeah. about this project and, I, and I, I'm with you, but just for the sake of yep. time, I feel like we need to kind of get away from the, yep, get, yep, get okay, more to yep. the point. Um, exactly. So, sorry about that. I appreciate your reminder. And I'm just going to end it here so, soon, actually, just a 10 second. So I, I will stop about the project detail. But the reason I say the detail is just to give you a picture of what they're doing. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that the, I think earlier someone talked about the collective nature of this um, preserving the history. I think it's very important so that it's not only one source and um, we are being fed only one 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 source of information, but we have other sources to verify the information. So this kind of contribution in a, like a metaverse or some other ways to collect information from different areas as self-validating as well, I think it's very important. That's all. Thank you. No, well, first of all, thank you for the kind words about the book. I appreciate it. And um, by the way, if people agree that this is an important subject and if you if you read the book and you like the book, one thing people can do, which would be awesome, would be to leave reviews about the book, either, you know, on Barnes & Noble, on Amazon, or, or wherever. So, um, you know, if you, if you want to help support and, and kind of get the word out there, uh, reviews are great because then people who see it and they say, oh, well, you know, people talk about crowdsourcing, right? People like this book. I should maybe check it out. So that's definitely one way people can help if you feel so inclined. Most important, though, is to read the book, and then we can have more conversations about it. Um, so my wife was born in Hong Kong, so I'm familiar with what's going on there. There actually was a part of the book that actually delved into a little bit of what's happening in China and the way history is appropriated and reappropriated in the context of the CCP. Uh, but again, I wound up taking that out because it just kind of took a little bit too far away from the main thrust of the book. But it's a fascinating conversation. There's a friend of mine on Clubhouse named Roger Huang who is really good on this, and he and I have riffed on this for a while. So I think what it sounds like we should do is have a history club conversation in the future where we can get into this a little bit more about how the CCP has been you know, reconfiguring history to advance its particular political objectives, whether it be vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan or Hong Kong or just 
expanding and strengthening its stronghold uh, in, in Asia and the South Pacific. So I appreciate the. How are you feeling about our time, Jason? I know it's late. Yeah, I got about two minutes left and then probably got to wrap it up. Oops, sorry. Um, Jeremiah, did you have a thought or a reflection for Jason? I know you've been up for a while. I'm just here to support Jason. Awesome. Um, I really enjoyed our time covering Constitution Dow and how technology is being used to try to preserve or share history in different ways. So thank you, Jason, and I look forward You're the man, my man. I always appreciate your support. So I, I Catherine, is it okay if I jump in? Oh, yes, question? of course. Jennifer, my gosh. <laughs> You've been right below me, and I have no idea how we just flew by you. But yes, please, Jennifer. So Jason, um, I know our time is wrapping up, but if there's one thing that you'd like us to take away to tease the book, like one hypothesis or one um, major theme that you'd like to touch on, I'd love to get a little bit from you, a little tease or just a little bit of why, why this book now or why we should read it or if that. Yeah. Not like why you wrote, not why you wrote it, but like, give us right. if, if if you could give us one of the hypotheses that you tease out. I believe that having a media literate and historically literate citizenry is a positive thing, and I think if people read this book, they will walk away from it a bit more media literate and historically literate than they were when they started the book. And so if that appeals to you, if having that knowledge appeals to you, if having that confidence when you see historical information online and you're better able to decipher it and assess it for its credibility appeals to you, if using that in a way that is constructive to democracy and advancing society to a place that we all want to go appeals to you, then I would encourage you to read the book. If those things don't appeal to you, then the book may not be for you, and that's fine too. Uh, but I think most of the people in this room, that does appeal to. And so for those reasons, even if you don't think you care about history all that much, for those reasons, I would recommend picking it up and giving it a read, and that I would love to hear after you've read it, if you agree. How's that? Well, I can just wholeheartedly second that invitation because it is a book to definitely explore and to be challenged by. Um, you know, and there, there are so many rich ideas, there are so many things to just tickle the brain, but there's a lot there to, to chew on, frankly. And it's why I said at the top of this conversation, you know, I've been feeling like, my gosh, you know, we could have hours of, of different conversations going down chasing down different particular threads, you know, because there are so many in the book, Jason. So um, should we be wrapping it up? I know there are a few more people that haven't had a chance to weigh in, but I, I know that we promised we would, we would end five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago, and I want to be mindful of your lateness. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, I'm getting a little sleepy. It is 1130 here on the East Coast, and I've got another round of events and talks to do tomorrow. So it's, it's not for... Um, 
it's 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 not that I don't love the people who are here on stage, and it's not that I don't want to hear your questions. Um, I just know that uh, as each minute passes, I'm becoming a little bit less intelligible and a little less able to uh, form coherent sentences. So um, let's put a pin in it. I'm actually going to be on Clubhouse tomorrow at 1 p.m. with Maceo in Citizens of Culture to talk more about the book. And then I'll also be on Clubhouse at 1 p.m. on Sunday with Kunal Sood in We the Future to talk about the book. And then we will do lots of History Club conversations about the book, I promise. So if you didn't get a chance to chime in today, this is not the last chance. It's not the last moment. This is the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. And next time we talk, uh, not tomorrow and Sunday, but in the future, uh, people will have actually read the book too. And so then we'll have even more to talk about because we can actually get into specifics and sort of be on the all on the same sheet of music about it. So, um, well, I'm I'm definitely keen for us to do a philosophy club room with you because there are a lot of really really you know fascinating <laughs> philosophical threads to chase down in the book. One last thing, Jason, where can people find out where they can find you? Is the best place to look your clubhouse bio? Um, you know, wh where where can people best access the information about where to find the clubhouse rooms? Where to to find out? Um, where these discussions are going to be. Oh, great question. So uh, I have a Substack, and it is my name, jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. So jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. And that's where I post all events that we're doing, whether it's on Clubhouse or Twitter Spaces or Zoom or whatever. It's where I post updates about the book. It's also where I write a newsletter article uh, on a regular basis. And uh, I wrote about Constitution Dow a couple weeks ago. I wrote about museums a couple weeks before that. We've written about crypto. We've written about all kinds of different things in that newsletter. So definitely stay in touch on the newsletter to learn more about the book, to learn more about the different things that we're thinking in History Club, to learn more about events. And in the future, I also want to start to bring in different voices to the newsletter and get different historians and journalists and philosophers and other people contributing to it. So um, I think it'll become a really rich platform for different kinds of historical thinking and historical writing. So jasonsteinhauer.substack.com. And a reminder that a link to the book is right above our heads. And if you haven't ordered it already, you absolutely, absolutely must. Um, and when you do order it and read it, make sure that you leave reviews wherever reviews are received, because it really, really does help a book. Um, so I guess I guess that's it. Quasi, any last last words as we wrap up the room? Um, just congratulations. I know this book has been a long time coming, and we we've uh, all been highly excited and anticipated this the book. And so, uh, congratulations to you, Jason. Um, for for finishing it up and um, welcoming you back to History Club, uh, we missed you while you were out, and uh, looking forward to a, a great winter, exploring these issues even further. Well, you guys are the best. Clubhouse has uplifted me. It's carried me through the pandemic. It's it's given me laughs. It's given me things to think about. It's enriched my life in a lot of ways, and uh, this room just adds to the ledger of enrichment. If there was a blockchain of enrichment in my life, Club Clubhouse would be all over.
Wonderful. Well, everyone, um, look out for more history disrupted book talks with Jason. Um, make sure that you keep up with his Substack. Um, and yeah, and stay tuned for, for further conversations about this really, really wonderful book. Again, Jason, congratulations. It's, it's such a great book. The world is lucky to have it. And I personally look forward to more conversations about it with you. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Have a great evening. And I will end the room now. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Jason. Thanks, Quasi. Thanks, everyone.